Thanks be to God. Well, before I uh, get uh, run up to uh, preach on that uh, amazing passage from the book of James, I've got a friend with me, um, Reverend Marianne Rolfs. Now, we've seen Marianne um, in action a few times um, already in our, our church, uh, leading us through communion, but I thought it'd be a good opportunity to get you up and get to know a little bit more about you and tell us a little bit about your day job. Well... If you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have told you I'm a physiotherapist. I do the bookkeeping for um, my husband's practice and I'm the mother of four school-aged children. However, in 2012, I was actually a student minister here with this community. um, It was my first year of formation for ministry. I was studying uh, at St. Francis College and at the end of 2014, I was ordained as deacon, then priest the following year, and I'm now chaplain, I have been for the last several years, at Coomera Anglican College. Excellent. What's uh, one thing that you love about your role as a school chaplain? The Just pe- one. The people. The, the people. people. Journeying with people is a great privilege. Um, journeying with people in a way that helps them to make meaning out of their life circumstances. School communities are incredibly diverse, large communities, so that is a great joy and privilege. What's one thing that you find challenging? Ah, yes, well, that would be the people. (laughs) (laughs) Journeying with um, a very large people in a large, diverse community is challenging. For people of faith, for those who are strong Christians in our community, I probably don't talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus, talk about prayer enough. For them, and they might say, is she even a Christian, they might ask. And yet for others in the community who have no faith or are really struggling with what faith looks like and sounds like in a world where uh, we're sliding further and further away from people having a grassroots understanding of what it means to be Christian, they probably think I talk about Jesus, the Bible, and prayer way too much. <laughs> so, yeah, so finding a way through that. Yeah. That's great. Now, um, you normally come to church with your husband, Brad, who is the best chiropractor I have ever seen. He's the only chiropractor (laughs) I have ever seen. But I know family is very important uh, to you and Brad. Can you tell us a little bit bit about your family? Yes. Well, Brad and I have been married for almost 35 years. I have to say, quite honestly, I can look him straight in the eye and say it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. (laughs) And he would nod and say, yes, it is. So I say that not... um, really by the grace of God, because we've faced a lot of uh, very difficult challenges together, the kinds of challenges that can make or break marriages, and I'm very grateful that uh, we are still married and very much in love, Mm, despite those challenges. Uh, Our children, we had four children, um, they're now in their late 20s, one's actually 30, about to turn 31, so that kind of... mm. Heidi's our eldest, and uh, she's married to Andrew. They have two young, two little boys, the youngest of which is only two weeks old. So that's been a really exciting time for us over the last two weeks. Uh, we have another son who's married and lives in Los Angeles because his professional life, uh, he's in film and TV, so his life is in Los Angeles. And then our daughter, uh, Jenny, lives here on the coast. We see a lot of her, and she brings us a lot of joy. Uh, our fourth, Andy. Uh, Andy... Um, ten years ago, Andy began to become unwell, and in June 2009, uh, at the age of 16, he died from cancer. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, Marianne's uh, 
been really, really brave to, to come and share a little bit about that journey with us uh, today, particularly in the context of that Bible passage uh, that we heard from James. And uh, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Um, um, we won't dig too deep in, but, but, uh, but I, I really am grateful for her vulnerability um, in, um, in sharing some of these uh, answers to the questions I'll ask her. Um, what role did prayer play in your journey of caring for a child who was dying? Prayer was really, really important. Um, and I, in the sense of God's presence, that prayer and speaking with God, crying out to God, crying to God, screaming to God, sitting with God, um, prayer was very much for me about presence. And my, that had been formed in large part by living, growing up in a home with a parent with an undiagnosed mental illness. And I remember as a 14-year-old crying out to God that God would do something, and God didn't. Um, and I'd lived with that through all my adult life. Um, we... That had been a really difficult journey and very challenging in terms of um, my own well-being, my sisters, and certainly for our marriage, it became a significant. So I journeyed with that. So when it came, when Andy was first unwell, I would have described it as a rock in the pit of my stomach, and I just knew, I just knew, even though it took a long time for this very rare and aggressive cancer to be diagnosed, I lived with a rock in the pit of my stomach. So as I prayed... I had to be sure that that rock was not fear. And I think that when it comes to prayer, that often we pray out of, that our fear and our our bargaining with God can easily become about fear. And I would ask myself that question, is this about fear? Or is this simply about living with the reality of what I know we're facing despite the best of medical intervention? Um, This was something that was not going to go away. So my own prayer was fed. I, I would sit with John's gospel during, as I nursed Andy for oh, nearly nine months. We, I sat with John's gospel and I would sit, often I have memories of sitting in hospital, sitting with John's gospel, all those late promises in, in John about asking. And yet he thought, God, what we need now is a way to get through this and asking for that and finding the answer in that sense of God's presence, not only as a father, but God's presence also as a loving mother. Um, God, the, whole, the wholeness of God coming to live and provide wholeness um, in us. Prayer was also a challenge because there were lots of prayer warriors out there who wanted to come and lay hands on Andy and pray for him. I was really sleep deprived. I was exhausted. It was such a difficult journey, even just with our family and each of the children being in different places and dealing in different ways. But people at times wanted to force their way in and that was really exhausting to to kind of protect Andy from that space where ill-informed, very well-meaning, but ill-informed people wanted to come and pray um, and claim things that were not ours to claim, I mm. believed. Mm. Um, yeah. What, what did you learn about prayer through that process? I really learned, for me, and I understand I'm only speaking for me, each of us, 
Each of us have journeys where you face challenges and prayer. If you were sitting here, your answers may be different. For me, I learned that prayer was about relationship, um, about relationship, about deepening the sense of God in us, that our incarnational understanding of who Jesus is is not that Jesus is distant, God's far away, but that God has come to be with us and that I pray to a God whose own son died. Um, I pray knowing that Jesus had a mother. We don't talk about Jesus' mother, you know, (laughs) as other traditions do. Jesus had a mother who watched her son die a cruel and um, vindictive death. There was, I found comfort in that, not praying to Jesus' mother, not, um, not that, but knowing that in this journey of faith, we are surrounded, that in our prayers, we, are, we do journey with others who have faced things far worse than I was facing or that we were facing as a family. Um, and I learned that, that God is always there to comfort. Um, in, that, in the passage just the first part of James 5, it talks about forgiveness and endurance, that just being with, staying with, um, and ensuring that as we pray, we're not harboring resentment, um, that we can be vulnerable to, to God so that we can be vulnerable with others. And I learned that the Psalms were also a great comfort, praying through the Psalms, and the whole, the, the whole gamut of human life, the joy and the celebration and the depths of despair. God, where are you? Um, and hearing the answer that, that I am with you and the promise of John's gospel, I am with you always, always. Mm. We've been talking over the last few weeks about faith that works. And mm. um, what's your experience of prayer and how has it strengthened or challenged uh, your faith um, into something that works? Mm. I think that prayer, praying simply in, in relationship has helped me to understand that we don't have to live out of, you know, really as people, we, we live out of our egos, don't we? And we want to, we're always comparing, we're always competing, and we're always wanting to control. That's kind of... They're the things that we have to overcome. And that letting those go and enabling prayer to simply be uh, a celebration of our life in God, who Christ is for us, um, and holding that and living with that and understanding that our our faith doesn't need to be a recipe um, to live authentically. We don't have to use a special language to have a strong faith. And I guess that's part of what I encounter in my life at the college, that I need to speak in ways that people get what you're saying. Um, And so in terms of faith, it's learning to put it in ordinary, everyday language and not over-spiritualising things, just being authentic, that, that, that Christianity is a very grassroots, organic, earthy way of live, doing life. That's who Jesus was and is and, and, and is for us. And that in following that, um, I'd say the prayer has strengthened my faith in, in helping me to, well, I hope, I hope and live authentically 
and help people to see that we need to come as we are, be honest about the struggles and the trials and the good things that are happening, not, yeah, and not bargain with God. And the final thing I'd say is that in a very, a few years after Andy died, in a very, it was probably a, a period of quite cynical reflection, I thought, I think it's sad that sometimes we approach prayer almost like a, this kind of brokerage that we, we kind of, we come to the stock exchange of prayer and we say, God, I'm bringing this uh, and therefore you owe me that. I think this sense of entitlement, we live in such an entitled culture. We live with a sense of entitlement. As children of God, we are entitled. We're simply entitled. But our entitlement is not a bargaining that we have demand and give me this God because I'm your child, that our faith is about our living out of, our, living, our following Christ, being disciples, taking up the life that God has given us to live and not in a brokering, bargaining kind of a way. It's simply in a, because we can't be entitled and grateful at the same time. We can only be grateful or living out of sense of entitlement. Gratitude for all that comes along, the really sad, stuff that sucks and you would just you know you never want to have to face it but finding a way to live out of gratitude for the gifts that come even in the worst of times um, will help us to live as disciples of Christ brilliant I hope can that's I, helpful can I pray for you? Thank you loving God I just thank you for Marianne and all she is and how authentic she's been uh, for us this morning uh, we just pray for her amazing family you continue to strengthen them um, in their love for each other, in their lives, in their relationships with each other, in their working lives and their family life. But above all, we thank you for this gift that she's given for us today and the gift that she continues to give through her ministry at Coomer Anglican College and in this church here. Strengthen her for your service. Um, and help her to uh, realise uh, what an authentic uh, vision of you that people see through her words, through her actions, and through her presence. Continue that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Marianne. Thank you. Would you thank Marianne for that? There's only one person I know that could follow that, uh, and that's uh, the Reverend Ron Bundy, who's going to come and share with us a little bit about James 5. (laughs) Uh, You're up there. Wow. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Look, just before we we look at that passage, um, just to say welcome especially to Garth and Michelle, my guests this morning. Um, Garth is the pastor of Tugulua Baptist Church, which is uh, near Esk, where my my son's a teacher at Lowood High. He's the head of the science and maths department. And uh, he and my daughter-in-law and two grandsons are happy members of his church. So welcome. And uh, just to say, people have been saying, where have I been? Well, I've been um, filling in in my former church where they've been waiting for two years to get an associate. Uh, They haven't got one, they've got a locum. And from next Sunday, I'm actually going to be filling in, the technical term is locum at St John's Coffs Harbour. That's where I'll be from next Sunday. But I'll be back now and then. Can we possibly have the first bit of the um, James 5 reading up there? Let me just say, um, 
this is a good ad for doing series in church because you have to look at all the difficult passages like this one, James 5, and it is difficult. Not difficult to understand, but the question, why doesn't it work? I don't want to look at the first bit about prayer in general or the last bit about bringing people back. I want to look at the, the guts of it, the bit that sticks out about prayer for the sick. It's interesting about series because next Sunday, my first Sunday at St John's Coffs Harbour, they don't know me from a bar of soap, the set reading is the most difficult passage in the New Testament on divorce, remarriage and adultery. So <laughs> I think they're getting their rocks ready already, so... It will be interesting. Although I like my father's definition, I've told you this before, of diplomacy. The gift of diplomacy is the ability to tell people they're going to hell in such a way they look forward to the experience. <laughs> so I'll be praying for that gift. Um, um, I've worked in lots of different parishes and every parish I've been in, there's been a group, I don't know about this one, who are into healing and other gifts and I, I guess from if you, where do you put me you'd put me in the sort of Anglican Pentecostal charismatic camp I guess but I've had people in churches who think the healing's the answer to everything you know and I remember I got into trouble at the gap when I was there it was a large congregation and I said one day my problem with the so called healing ministry is it doesn't work <gasps> Uh, and I said, look, we've got to be honest as Christians and not make apologies for God, okay? And it raises the whole issue of how do Christians work out their life? We've got what the Bible says, and then we hear about Brad and Marianne's son, or my close friends who are involved, their, their son died age 13, um, and no doubt thousands of people prayed for them. But is it enough for me to think, well, that's it, Christianity is a load of garbage, it never happened, I'm giving it up? Of course not. That's part of, I think actually there's nine fruit of the Spirit, you know, the last one is self-control. As I said here a couple of weeks ago, I think, I said it here, was that at St. James anyway, I think there should be a tenth fruit of the Spirit called frustration. Frustration, the tension between what you believe from the Bible and what you experience. As one theologian, Karl Barth, said, you, you work out reality with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, or your Bible in one hand and experience in the other. So this is not an easy passage to look at. Well, it's easy to understand. I can understand that easily. He tells us what to do. You get sick. You ring up the elders of the church. Hey, I'm crook. Can you come over? They anoint you and you get better. What's so hard to understand about that? Well, it doesn't always work. My, uh, my kids are, my son's 46 now, my youngest daughter, Lydia, 38, has had um, really serious epilepsy since she was 11. I did as a kid too. I was paralysed down one side. And people prayed and prayed and prayed. But it's interesting, she hasn't had a seizure now for a year. And she used to have sometimes 17 in a weekend, fall down flights of steps, all the blood vessels burst in her face, things like that. Um, so, this is serious stuff. And let me just say, this is a really interesting passage because I think it's the only, I think, prescriptive passage in the Bible about healing, I think. All the rest are descriptive, I think. 
This is really important when you read the Bible. You've got to ask yourself, is the Bible just describing something that happened? Or is it prescribing something that I'm meant to do for all time? Because sometimes people fall into the trap that just because the Bible describes something that happened back then, therefore, ipso facto, it has to happen now. No, no, it doesn't. Um, this, in most healings, didn't happen in church. You think of our Lord's ministry, they happened out in the street, in synagogues, in people's homes. This passage is about Christians in church who get sick. What do they do? Now, just a bit of perspective here. Of all the people that Jesus healed, are any alive on earth today, walking around with beards down to the ground and dreadlocks at Stratton? No, they're not. They all died. So you've got to have that perspective as well. The other bit of perspective is this, that after church today or around about midday, I'm going to a palliative care unit at Rabina. There's a family I've had a lot to do with. And there's a man there. I prayed with him on the phone yesterday. And if he's up to it, I'll go today. Am I praying for his healing? If he asks me to, I will. But I don't think so. Oh, you need a bit of discernment there. So let's look at the steps of this passage. To whom is this passage addressed? It's addressed to any Christian um, are any among you, it's written to the church, are many among you sick? What should they do? So it tells me that they're really sick. Um, then They've not got a, an ingrown toenail or something because uh, it says the prayer of faith will raise them up. The word there is resurrect. So the person's that sick, they're lying in bed. And if you've ever been, I rarely ever get sick. But when I do, I, I find it hard to read the Bible and pray. You know? All I want to do is watch Dr. Phil. Sorry, but not Judge Judy. I've got my standards, mind you. Um, um, so they must be really sick, but they're well enough to pick up the phone and say, Ron, can a couple of people come over to pray for me? So they call the elders. Now, this is really important. Um, they should call for the elders of the church. An elder literally means older person, but it could be people who are leaders in the church, at least two elders and have them pray over them anoint with oil but it's not any old prayer this is the tricky bit the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins the sins will be forgiven he's not saying that they're, they're sick because they've sinned if they have okay it's not watertight on this because he goes on further to say therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another but if you're that sick, you can't get to church. What he's saying is ring up the elders. Now, um, I, I I'd be careful who you ask to pray for you. It's interesting, uh, as uh, Mary Ann said, there are some people I think can't handle people being sick. I, I remember uh, a lady in Adelaide who... who um, really ended up giving up the faith when I worked there because people are praying and praying and getting her to confess, you know, was a family involved in Freemason, all this nonsense they went on with uh, to pray about this thing in her life. It was a chemical imbalance in her life. You know. Well-meaning, but really dangerous. And interesting, when Jesus went to pray for that little girl who died, he, he kept all the mockers outside and he took 
people with him. So it is very important, this stuff. Um, I think, too, by the way, if it should be male and female together. It's not good for two men to pray for one woman or two women to pray for one man. Just be wise there. So they need to be people who can pray the prayer of faith. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, notice he says there, if there are any sins, confess them. Notice there's no priest involved in this confession here. It's interesting, Martin Luther said that, um, it's funny, the name of the, the person you confess your sins to here is called, with an unusual name, one another. Not Father Stuart or Father Ron. Confession is really important. It's easy to confess to God. But I, I, I grew up, as I've told you before, as a, an agnostic Catholic in pre-Vatican II, and I've still got my 1955 Latin Missal. Um, my family went to church, but we never really believed anything. My, my memories of confession is on a Saturday afternoon going to St Mary's Manly in Sydney, where I grew up, and later on used to ride skateboards in the grounds and then went surfing, was to go in... Holy water, go to the confessional, priest slides the little door open, and I'd say, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. And uh, it was really hard as an eight or a nine-year-old to think up some sins. And I'm not trying to, I don't want to belittle it, I think there's a place for that, I really do. And then I was given a penance, maybe 50 Lord's Prayers, 50 Hail Marys. So that's the image I had for confession. And once when I went on my first clergy retreat here in Brisbane Diocese in 1993, uh, as a bishop leading it, you could make an appointment for confession. And I had something really on my heart because I came from Darwin, from a church that went really well, but I came from there as a broken man. I really did. Church went well, but I didn't. And I went in there and the bishop's just sitting there on a chair and he said, oh, well, okay, how about I confess my sins to you first? I thought, oh, fair enough. Uh, it was really mind-blowing. I thought, that's what he means by confession. It just means owning up to someone saying, look, I'm really struggling with alcohol or smoking or I keep losing it. That's confession. Easy to tell God on your own, but tell somebody else and be accountable. So there's that place for it. So what is, let's, and I don't want to make this too long. Um, notice the elders pray. They pray the prayer of faith. What is the prayer of faith? Well, James tells us, actually, in chapter 1. Um, if any of you lacks wisdom, they should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to them. But when they ask, they must believe and not doubt. I find that, I find that difficult. They must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not think they'll receive anything from the Lord. They're a double-minded person, unstable in all they do. So, so faith is single-mindedness. The, the best definition of doubt I've seen is a person who's not sure which boat to be in. There's two boats. There's unbelief and there's belief. So they're not sure, so they put a foot in each. And it's not a good place to be because you end up in the drink. Uh, in, in the end, faith means you take that step over. So it's difficult, isn't it? Because, and I'm sorry, this sermon is going to be deeply unsatisfying. I'm going to leave you wrestling with it, maybe disagreeing with it. 
You know what I mean? I've had people, I remember again when I was involved in a charismatic group in a large Anglican church in Adelaide where there was a lady dying and one well-meaning woman had a word of knowledge for her that she'd lived to see her grandchildren. She didn't. And my senior minister was so angry with those people. He said, you stopped me from ministering to that lady and her dying because you didn't want to talk about it. She had your well-meaning but wrong promise. So this is a bit of a minefield, and I can understand why the early church veered right away from this stuff and stuck to the prayer book, because it's safe. But safety is deadly. What do we do about it? I I think, uh, for me, I I have to really, uh, again, if somebody asks me to do it, I simply follow out the instructions. I pray for the person, and I anoint them. Why anoint them? Because the Bible says to do it. If you know that story of Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy and he had a Jewish slave and she said, look, if you get my master, Elisha, he'll heal you. And Elisha doesn't even go out and meet Naaman the Syrian. He said, just go and wash in the river seven times. And he's really upset. He thought that uh, Elisha would come out and he said, wave his hand over the spot or something. And Naaman the Syrian servant said, basically, swallow your pride just do what he says and he goes into the water once twice three times four times five times six times the seventh time he comes out and his skin is as smooth as a baby's back so you know we tend to think that people and if this is the james i'm thinking of his nickname was camel knees because he prayed so much uh, we think that other people got this great gift of prayer But he says that Elijah was a person just like us. So, um, if you're sick, I mean, I I, I go to the doctor. I don't know where you stop with this sort of stuff. Do I I pray that I won't have to have dentures? Not wear glasses? There's a... It's a bit tricky, isn't it? I don't think Jesus healed people all the time to make and better heal them as a sign of the kingdom. But here is a quest from someone who's sick in bed and they ring up the leaders of the church. Um, This is where it's so unsatisfying. Um, But I think we need to probably practice this carefully and pray about the whole issue of faith and single-mindedness. I tend to agree with some of my friends that it is something we need to recover. Uh, One church that I was in that grew really very much so grew because they saw God at work. They didn't just hear it, not through healing, but through other things. It was experiential. Now, let me finish. Um, In a little while, I think Stuart's going to mention, can I say something now? that when church ends today, we thought we should do something about this. When you all go out, if you go out for coffee, I think that uh, me, I think Anne, maybe, Marianne, I think, possibly, Elroy, we're going to gather over there in the chapel area. And if you want prayer, we'll follow the steps of James. Um, Just two people will pray with you, not the whole group, and anoint you with oil. So I don't know of any other way forward. But please wrestle with this. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for um, all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for the gift of faith. And yet we bring before you the very real questions we have of people we've prayed for, um, 
reasonable prayers for marriages to be fixed up, for loved ones to be healed, and it didn't appear to us that you turned up. But we know we're in good company with Job and the Psalms. The Bible expresses exactly that. Help us to wrestle with this, we pray. Help us to be careful but not fearful. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to keep praying now and uh, Don's going to lead us in a time of prayer. I email.